It's about you, your health, your family, and your community. This is Sunday Morning Magazine with your host, Rodney Lear. And good morning. Hope you're having a great weekend. Welcome to another edition of Sunday Morning Magazine. Remember, for more information on the show, you can now like us on our Facebook page. Simply visit us at Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear. You'll find out about all our guests and more about the show. As we celebrate the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday on tomorrow and the opening of the movie Salma, it's our pleasure to welcome Taylor Branch. He's the author of the book, At Canaan's Edge, America in the King Years, 1965 through 68. It's our pleasure to welcome Pulitzer Prize winning author Taylor Branch to Sunday Morning Magazine. Thank you. Nice to be here, Rodney. Now, this is the third book in a series that you've done on the life of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Is that right? That's right. The first book, Parting the Waters, came out um, uh, about 18 years ago, and uh, this is the third and last uh, book in a series uh, called America in the King Years. So, Mr. Branch, I understand that you won a Pulitzer Prize Award for your work in this series, which is the highest honor in literature. What was that whole experience like for you? To win the Pulitzer? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Pretty bizarre uh, thing. I had worked six years on the book, had to take odd jobs to make ends meet, and my family and I were away and got a notice on a tent where we were camping out. Somebody came out in the woods and found us and penned a notice on our tent saying, call your publisher. And they said we had won the Pulitzer. I didn't even know, you know, I didn't even know when the Pulitzers were up then. This is not, you know, it's not something, it comes out of the blue. Now, let me ask you this. Now, over the years, there have been so many books written about Dr. King. Are there any new revelations in your book? And did you use any previously untapped resources um, in researching the book? Well, I used FBI uh, resources, uh, wiretap information, which is primarily useful because you can literally read of Dr. King's AIDS debating strategy. And similarly, uh, I used um, and listened to hundreds of uh, President Johnson's phone recordings where he and his aides discuss strategy often on the same subjects. The, the overwhelming subjects in this period, 65 to 68, are, are, are civil rights uh, and, Viet- and the Vietnam War, which are going on simultaneously. And, you know, they're very contemporary questions because civil rights having to do with citizenship and democracy at home and Vietnam was can we uh, can we promote democracy abroad by force of arms um, which is very much like Iraq today and and uh, uh, questions of surveillance uh, today uh, those loomed large back then as well and again in case you're just tuning in we're speaking to Pulitzer Prize award-winning author Taylor Branch the name of his new book is at Canaan's Edge America in the King Years 1965 to 1968 and again this is the third installment in the trilogy that covers the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement now one thing that I've always found amazing about Dr. King was his last sermon where he almost foretold of his death. I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, that sermon the night before he was killed, uh, the sermon on April 3rd, 1968, was in Memphis during the sanitation worker strike. And he, he said, you know, I have looked, I have been to the mountaintop. I'm not worried about anything. I've been to the mountaintop. Um, I've been able to, allowed to look over into the, I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get there to the promised land. 
Uh, that's really the title that I have here at Canaan's Edge. Dr. King, like Moses, was allowed to get to the edge of the Promised Land, but but not to reach it, uh, to glimpse it, but not to reach it, uh, just like Moses. All my titles come from the book of Exodus. Um, it's not new that the, Dr. King preached about his death um, many times, um, which is not surprising since he was threatened uh, almost every day of his life. Uh, what was new about this speech was that he said he, he didn't really expect the the sanitation worker strike and the poor people's campaign to uh, break through in his lifetime, that he was leaving it for us uh, and later generations um, to pick up his campaign for poor people and to extend uh, his doctrine of nonviolence to create miracles for poor people uh, again. Now, what many people may not know is that Dr. King faced some internal disagreements when it came to his views on nonviolence with those in his inner circle or cabinet. Um, let's talk about that. Uh, yes, this book starts in Selma uh, on the Pettus Bridge in 1965 when Dr. King, back from the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, wanted to um, mount a new campaign for the most fundamental thing in democracy, the right to vote for uh, nearly four million black people who could not vote in the South were not permitted to by the southern states. Uh, the disagreements really started there because many of his staff didn't want this movement to happen. Um, they felt they had struggled for ten years to end segregation and open up uh, opportunities not only for black people but for women because the the 64 law banned uh, discrimination by uh, against women as well. Um, and they thought... These aides thought they could dine out on that for about 10 or 20 years um, without risking jail again, but Dr. King said, no, we have to, we've been to the mountaintop, but the valley calls us, and he went to Selma. Um, the Selma march uh, took a whole, it took three months, that campaign. It was the last great campaign, and it wound up with the, uh, it started with Bloody Sunday and went through the great um, march all the way to Montgomery and created the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Then the disagreements really got serious because um, Dr. King wanted to come north and to show that the race issue was not just a southern problem, that it was a national problem and always had been. Some of his aides didn't want to do that. He also felt that the Vietnam War necessarily threatened and un undid the movement and it was not the right way to promote democracy around the world. And, a lot of, and his aides unanimously were against his uh, giving a big speech at Riverside Church and then finally, he wanted to have a poor people's campaign to leave kind of a testament that democracy could work miracles if it if it really focused on nonviolence and and its positive potential. And a lot of his aides didn't want to do that either. So there was tremendous conflict, especially if you realize that he's also uh, trying, you know, being threatened every day and wiretapped by his own government while his while his his aides themselves are pulling him in every conceivable direction. All right. And that's a good transition into my next question. I want to talk about the harassment Dr. King faced at the hands of the FBI, in particular, J. Edgar Hoover. Do you believe Hoover misused his power? Absolutely. There's no question about it. It's a complex portrait because at the same time, uh, his agents and, and Dr. King's people are the first ones to give credit uh, for this, which is remarkable in the wiretaps. They say, you know, Hoover hates um, Martin and is and is persecuting him, but his agents are solving uh, race crimes in the South for the first time. I mean, FBI agents didn't go into the FBI to sit around with headphones on, um, uh, 
peeping in on people's uh, conversation. Most of them went in to solve crimes, and they were doing that in the South for the first time in the in uh, some of the Klan murders. But at the same time, J. Edgar Hoover's uh, people at the in the political branches at the top of the FBI um, were definitely av- doing everything they could to avoid any accountability, to have kind of a king's. Uh, powers to uh, to surveil, to bug, to break into uh, King's hotel rooms and plant bugs whenever they wanted and to and to use the information to try to discredit him, uh to plant false stories about him. Um it is a long and shameful, uh disgraceful and even criminal record at the at the top of the FBI. Okay, and there were times when Hoover failed to protect Dr. King or warn him about threats on his life. Yes, that's um that's kind of a measure of, of how vindictive it was. People in government are human beings, too, and one of the reasons we need checks and balances is, is, is to prevent um, people's uh, passions and, and dislikes and, and fundamental uh, flaws from um, giving full vent. Dr. King was the only person on record uh, that I've been able to find anyway that Hoover had a standing order to uh, set aside the FBI policy to warn the victims of assassination threats. He just said, you will not warn uh, Martin Luther King when our intelligence says that he's uh, to be threatened because that will make him think that we are his public servants too and my, the FBI will not be a public servant uh, to Martin Luther King. So um, uh, that's a pretty unique order to to essentially uh, forsake uh, public duty uh, out of out of pure spite. And again, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. On the phone with me now is Pulitzer Prize winning author Taylor Branch. The name of his new book is At Canaan's Edge. The book chronicles the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement from 1965 to 1968. Now, for those that are in their teens who see footage of the great civil rights marches of the 50s and 60s and don't understand the full magnitude, explain the amount of courage, faith, and strength it took to be involved in these marches, let alone lead such a march and an entire movement such as Dr. King did? Well, that's a good question because today people who grow up taking for granted a lot of the changes that we have can barely imagine uh, what it was like back then um, when segregation was so pervasive that um, you couldn't go into restaurants. There a lot of restaurants in the, there were actually public laws in the South that you couldn't play checkers uh, in public uh, if, if you were of two different races. Uh, that the restaurants had to have partitions if black people were allowed to 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 even have carry out food in restaurants so it was it was very pervasive um, and but the whole power of the of the southern states and the psychology was invested in enforcing this segregation and um it, it, you had no sanction of law when 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 you tried to change things in fact most people didn't think it was possible so these demonstrators um were trained in nonviolence, meaning they were willing to accept punishment and be beaten uh, and arrested by the authorities um, uh, to protest for their view that uh, democracy required dismantling these laws that the greater democracy did. And uh, lots of them uh, went to jail, lots of them suffered, and, and many of them were killed. There was a lot of terror um, in, in, the, in the southern regions of the United States where segregation laws prevailed. Uh, the pertinence of all this for 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 people now who don't live in this and and uh, there isn't uh, terror in the United States is that 
this witness for democratic values set in motion all kinds of things that we take for granted today not only that there's not terror against black people in the south but also it set loose um other benefits for the south which is now the most prosperous region of the country and has the sun belt and its politicians are no longer stigmatized but it it liberated also every young woman in america white or black from things that uh, people don't realize back then women couldn't even serve on juries in a lot of um states or 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 go to most private colleges in the united states or enter most professions so uh, once the civil rights movement started struggling over equal citizenship, everybody, uh, people from today benefit, and therefore they have uh, uh, reason uh, to understand and to celebrate this struggle um, just two generations ago. And that's what I was going to add, too, is that we're not talking about a long time ago. We're talking oh, we're not talking about a long time ago, but we're talking about fundamental struggles, people really struggling over what is the nature and promise of democracy. And at a time when we're uh endeavoring to to spread democracy around the world and when some people consider it threatened here by our deficits and our environmental problems and and, and all kinds of issues this is a very instructive um struggle to look look back at where ordinary citizens were were really um studying and practicing and uh exemplifying uh what democracy is all about which is self government where the citizens themselves take responsibility for for their politics uh, we we're accustomed to it in voting but in the civil rights era people did it every day and again in case you're just tuning in we're speaking to Pulitzer Prize winning author Taylor Branch the name of his book is At Canaan's Edge America in the King Years 1965 to 1968 and the book chronicles the life of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement I'm Rodney Lear you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine now right now I'm going to mention a few people of the civil rights era and I want you to mention briefly their relationship with Dr. King and I want to start this morning with President President Lyndon Johnson. It's an amazing relationship. Lyndon Johnson was the first Southern president in a hundred years. He was from Texas. Uh, people thought that he was a conservative and against civil rights, but he came into office after President Kennedy was assassinated and pushed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And in this book, forms a, a, a truly remarkable, almost secret partnership with Dr. King. Um, for the Voting Rights Act in 1965 to consciously, Johnson risked his presidential base and the base of future Democratic presidents by um, antagonizing the segregationist South at a time when it was all Democrats. And he said, I'm giving the South to the Republican Party for my lifetime and the future. Uh, He did that anyway in collaboration with um, uh, Dr. King, whose citizens' movement was creating uh, public pressure uh, on Johnson to do exactly what he wanted to do. So they had a very delicate, subtle um, um, uh, partnership to change the whole partisan structure of American politics uh, and to and to create the right to vote for, for 4 million black people in the South. But then their relationship quickly fell apart over Vietnam because uh, Johnson, as you can hear him agonizing over the war, didn't want to have this war but decided to have it anyway because he was afraid he would be considered a coward if he didn't do it, uh, which is more or less exactly what he said. And Dr. King, uh, uh, after a a terrible struggle behind the scenes, denounced that war as as, as, as an improper and 
way to try to promote democracy, and uh, King and Johnson fell into estrangement. So it's a very tragic relationship. Okay, and what about um, Ralph Abernathy? Ralph Abernathy was Dr. King's indispensable partner from Montgomery, um, from the bus boycott on. Uh, by the end of his life, uh, Abernathy was a little jealous of Dr. King, thought maybe he should have been head of the Montgomery bus boycott, thought he deserved half the Nobel Peace Prize money, and um, they they had a little kind of tension and jealousy at the top of their movement, and yet Dr. King uh, felt that he could never go to jail or, uh, or enter into a movement without his sidekick and friend Ralph Abernathy at his side, uh, where Abernathy was on the balcony um, uh, shortly after Dr. King was shot in Memphis uh, at the end of his life. Okay, what about Dr. King's relationship with Stokely Carmichael? Stokely Carmichael was a young student in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee who um, had been going to jail and sit-ins and freedom rides for six years. He was and pursuing the right to vote um, uh, in the toughest counties in the South. And um, basically he got tired and weary and, and felt that it was unfair that black people should be expected to be the only ones suffering in their nonviolence, seeking out sacrifice. Um, and Dr. King told him he was doing it as a leader for all of America, but that was a hard argument for Stokely to swallow. And after a, uh, an amazing experience as a leader of democracy in Lowndes County, Alabama, the most uh, prim- one of the most primitive counties there was, where no black person had voted in the entire 20th century, Stokely finally rebelled and um, and pronounced the Black Power Doctrine that became instantly famous and renounced not only nonviolence, but the vote and democracy itself, saying that they were tricks against black people. So he he is a, a, a very charismatic leader and one basically who 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 admired and and loved Dr. King, but uh, essentially couldn't couldn't hold to the doctrine of nonviolence and rebelled against it. And again, in case you're just tuning in, we're speaking to Taylor Branch. The name of his new book is At Canaan's Edge, America in the King Years, 1965 to 1968. Now let's talk about King's relationship with his wife, Coretta Scott King, and how she impacted the civil rights movement. And firstly, I want to ask you this now. Did Dr. King seek Coretta's advice when it came to issues about the movement? Well, certainly he did. She was an activist uh, when he met her um, on uh, on a wide range of issues, but m- mostly sh- uh, she was um, active uh, in applying nonviolence beyond the race issue to issues of war and peace, saying that uh, the essence of democracy is nonviolence. That's what a vote is, and that uh, and that uh, the, the doctrines of nonviolence to cre- to create. Um, uh, Nonviolent uh, political solutions, uh, not just for racism, but for poverty and for war, uh, was, was a high calling. Uh, and that, and in that sense, uh, Coretta was a member of peace groups and gave uh, speeches with Dr. King's full approval, applying the doctrine of nonviolence um, uh, to issues of peace uh, before he did. And so, in the, in that sense, uh, she was a very um, had a broad-based understanding of of what the movement's doctrines were and why civil rights leaders were in the role of modern American founders who were trying to, you know, create new democracy where they had in the in the face of oppression. And um, in that sense, uh, Coretta was uh, more than a full partner. 
All right. And again, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. On the phone with me now is Pulitzer Prize winning author Taylor Branch. The name of his book is At Canaan's Edge, America in the King Years, 1965 to 1968. And let me ask you this now. Before Mrs. King passed, were you able to talk to her in the interview process or in the research process for the book? Oh, yes. Okay, and tell us about your interaction with Miss King and her reaction to the books. Well, she called me in after every book but this one. Uh, I was actually going to Atlanta for the first time to promote it uh, and and arrived. Uh, It was my first stop uh, the morning she died. But for the two previous books, she would call me in after each one. Um, And um, we would have talks, and and, uh, and, uh, she was very gracious and and said it's hard to be written about. I'm not saying everything you write is is, is accurate, uh, uh, but I I want you to keep continuing your work. And uh, so she was very gracious about that. All right, and share with me, if you will, your fondest memory of Coretta Scott King. Well, I think my fondest memory of her was um, spending time with her alone once after uh, one of my book. one of the times she called me in. Uh, there weren't that many. It was um, after, I think it was after my second book in 1998. Uh, she heard, <laughs> she got word that one of her lawyers had sent me a letter saying that I needed a license to write a book, uh, to write another book about Dr. King, um, and uh, which was true. They sent me kind of a, a, a bristly letter saying you need you need to be licensed, and. Um, uh, which is kind of a uh, uh, an overzealous notion trying to control what I would uh, write. And so I went in uh, somewhat nervously because I'd just gotten this kind of uh, hostile letter from her lawyer, and she said, you know, um, I don't know everything that happens around here, and uh, I didn't know this letter was going out, but I'm embarrassed by it, and we want you to know that that while we don't approve everything you write, we uh, really want all scholars to study the movement. And um, uh, please disregard this letter. And it started off, um, so what started off to be rather nervous conversation, if I was afraid she might support her lawyer, turned into a very gracious one, and we sat and reminisced for a long time. I will never have a better memory than that, um, (laughs) because I was nervous when I went in, and I was... uh, Uh, quite uh, moved and appreciative when I came out. This was at the King Center in Atlanta. Now, Mr. Branch, let me ask you this. This is probably more of a side note or for my own personal curiosity, but we don't hear much about the King's parents, the parents of Martin Luther King Jr. and the parents of Coretta Scott King. Um, Why don't you tell us briefly about their parents, starting with the mother of Martin Luther King Jr.? His mother uh, died uh, playing the organ in the church when a deranged person stood up in the middle of a church service and shot her. A horrendous um, incident in 1974, uh, six years after Dr. King was killed. Okay, and what about Dr. King's dad? Uh, Daddy King died an, uh, an, uh, a natural death in the 1990s. He lived to a ripe old age, um, okay. but his wife, uh, Alberta King, was, was killed at her organ. She had been a church organist her whole life. Okay, and what about Coretta's parents? Obadiah Scott, uh, 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 her her father um, uh, died about uh, 15 years ago. Uh, Obadiah Scott was a, 
a farmer in Marion, Alabama, in Perry County, which is right outside of Selma, and actually where this book starts during the Selma March on Bloody Sunday, uh, was in the next county over and uh, over demonstrations that took place right where they lived. He was a he was a farmer, uh, actually a prosperous farmer for his day, one of the few sharecroppers who had his own tractor. And for that reason, uh, some white people burned down uh, his tractor back in the 30s and 40s because they thought he was too prosperous for a black man. All right. And again, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. On the phone with me this morning is Pulitzer Prize winning author Taylor Branch. The name of his book is At Canaan's Edge, America in the King Years 1965 to 1968. The book is the third and final installment of a trilogy that looks at the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. Um, let me ask you this now. Um, we're running out of time this morning, but I guess one of the biggest conspiracy theories is is that the government played a role in Dr. King's assassination. I want to get your thoughts on that. Yes, that's a good question. Certainly, in this book, um, on page after page, there are small there are details of disgraceful uh, plots uh that the FBI launched against Dr. King to break into his hotel rooms to plant false rumors about him to plant true rumors about him um uh and and uh we really have not yet uh learned how to deal with the, the political abuse of our intelligence agencies that's obviously still uh, an issue however most of these plots if you if you look at them are um are petty, they are harassment. The FBI put stuff on plain paper so it couldn't be traced to them. Hoover's standing order was make sure you cause no embarrassment to the Bureau, that we're not traced to any of this stuff. It's it's somewhat um, cowardly and and, and um, um, harassment. It's not a it's not a, a murder order. And I, while I think there was enormous hostility and and uh, uh, shame in in what the bureau did, that uh, the American people need to deal with it. Um, I don't think that it went to a conspiracy of uh, of murder. And in fact, I think Dr. King himself believed that. Um, it's dangerous to think that the government's implacably evil and a conspirator uh, to kill people because uh, he always, in every movement, said we have to, uh, you know, his dream was that the nation would rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed uh, through citizens and their government and that it could, and that the government was the instrument of freedom. So he didn't believe the government was an, an enemy, and in that sense, conspiracy theories are dangerous. And again, this morning, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. Remember, for more information on the show, you can always like us on our Facebook page. You'll find out additional information about our guests and information about the show. Just visit us at Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on Facebook and like us there. On the phone with me now is Taylor Branch. He's the author of the book, At Canaan's Edge, America in the King Years, 1965 through 68. Now, let me ask you this. When we think about the civil rights era, we've seen so many of those icons pass away. At this point in this era, who can pick up the torch? Well, I think we are near the end of that era. If we're talking about an era in which we're looking to people from that period um, as uh, to memorialize them, uh, I do think, however, that the issues that they that they raise about what is democracy, and as Dr. King said, the United States was uniquely founded on the idea of freedom, and that's our only story is what it means. 
what it means in Iraq, what it means today, what it means for the deficit, the environment for immigrants. Um, uh, in that sense, uh, new people can come from almost anywhere. You know, Dr. King uh, never said that he was here to advance the rights of black people. He said he was here to advance the rights of democracy that in, uh, that included most uh, primarily uh, removing uh, obstacles to black people who had been um, denied the benefits of democracy. But um, in that sense, going forward and how important uh, these issues are, it's up to everybody and every citizen uh, as it happened in the civil rights movement to to take seriously their citizenship and 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 thereby become leaders like they were finally this morning i kind of talked about this earlier but there's been so much written about dr king tell us something that most people may not know about dr king well i think most people don't know he had a he had a sense of humor i i don't think most people know that his movement allowed uh women to serve on juries um, for the first time or and go to private colleges. I don't think uh, most people know that his um, movement led to the first reforms of, of, of immigration to allow Asian families uh, to come to the United States for the first time and change the face of America. A lot of surprising things were traceable to this movement. Uh, and I don't think people know how much... Um, pressure he was under from every conceivable direction uh through his lifetime this is not a man who had a who who was a uh, a pious saint going forward every day this was a guy who was in a crucible being pushed in every direction and it made makes his life um a, a really amazing one for for somebody like me to study all these years i feel it a blessing to have made it my life's work. All right. And with that, we're out of time this morning. If our listeners would like to get a copy of the book, again, the name of the book, Mr. Branch, is? At Canaan's Edge, America in the King Years, 1965 to 68. And if our listeners want to pick up a copy of the book, how can they do so? Well, it should be at every uh, in every bookstore. It's also on my website, taylorbranch.com, and uh, and uh, they can buy it over the web. We've been speaking to Pulitzer Prize winning author Taylor Branch.